Take your Bible and join me in Psalm 93 as we savor, savor the Psalter this afternoon. And uh, just a time that we can refresh one another in the Word and fellowship. Uh, and this will be more of an informal time that I can just share some scriptures and encourage you, hopefully. Psalm 93, it is five verses in length, but it is powerful. And um, hopefully I'll be able to encourage you a little bit in the Lord. Psalm 93, follow along in verse number 1. The Bible says, The Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength. Wherewith he hath girded himself. The world also is established that it cannot be moved. Thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. The floods have lifted up O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. Yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. Thy testimonies are very sure. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. Lord, I come before you one more time today. Thank you for a wonderful service this morning, fellowshipping, being able to spend time in your word, considering how your spirit empowers us to serve you. And then thank you, Lord, that we can continue together this afternoon with those that remain here. Uh, Lord, I thank you for their fellowship. And I pray that as the days go forward, you would uh, continue to uh, add to this afternoon time, those that would desire to stay in fellowship with us I pray you would, it would be easy for them to do that, Lord. But thank you for the time that we can come and encourage each other in your word. And I do ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit's power. That, Lord, we would have your word become plain to us. That you would open our eyes. That we would behold wondrous things out of thy law. And thank you for this day where we can come aside from the cares of life. We can set our affections on things above and not on things on the earth. We can hit the reset button as we get ready to serve you for a new week. This being the first day, according to when our, our, uh, our Savior rose from the dead, the apostles, the disciples, they all gathered on that first day of the week to celebrate his resurrection. And we do that here today. We say together, the Lord reigneth. May you be king in our midst and may you be king over our circumstances. And may we acknowledge your sovereignty, Lord, that there is no thing too hard for you. We call upon you, Lord, and we ask your help as your word goes forth that it would accomplish that to which you send it. Bless this time of fellowship in your word as we break the bread of it together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Psalm 93. This psalm uh, historically has been used in, um, in Orthodox Judaism when they would gather in the synagogues. This was the psalm that was appointed to be read uh, every Friday, so it would be just before the Sabbath, uh, and so Sabbath begins Friday night at 6 p.m. for them. They would read this, uh, according to Scroge, they would read it on um, Friday. And so what a, what a great way to approach the Lord's Day, right? The, what would be the Lord's, or the Sabbath rest for them. Today, we celebrate the Lord's Day, as I mentioned in my prayer, because Jesus rose on the first day of the week. It's also the number eight. After seven, meaning new beginnings, and we have new life through him. But I think it's interesting, I think it was Spurgeon that pointed this out uh, in his dealing with this psalm. 
that it's a good way to set our mind on what God does, to think about that Sabbath rest, that he worked six days, and then the seventh day he rested, and to come into God's presence and be mindful that he is king, that he reigns over all, that he is supreme over all. You see, this allows us to hit that reset button, to be able to approach the week and say, God, no matter what comes this week, I'm going to remember you're still on the throne. And this is a psalm that reminds us to set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. You see, down here we can get caught up in so many different things that pull us every direction that we could possibly be torn into. And this psalm reminds us God sees it all. He sees it. He sees the end from the beginning. Nothing catches him by surprise. The Lord reigneth. There's a lot of beauty that's happening here with the language itself. And you can see in the English how it's worded. It just draws our mind to worship God, to lift him up in our mind. Notice uh, there's no inscription. There are, uh, there are a number of anonymous psalms. That is, we don't know who wrote them. And so we don't, uh, we don't know who to attribute it to. Uh, the Jews, historically, the rabbis used to teach that Adam said this psalm in the garden. But I don't know. I think there's too many arguments against that. I don't. I don't see Adam being able to say, uh, let's see, where is it in here? The floods have lifted up their voice. Uh, the Lord is mightier. You know, he talks about, he talks about it being established and there's, there's just things going on here that I don't know that Adam could have written about in paradise, but that's what they say. They attribute to that, but it is anonymous. We don't know who wrote the psalm. We don't know exactly when it was written. Uh, from what I've studied, I think it is, it's very viable that it's a very early psalm, uh, that it's, it's ancient in many, many ways. And this would speak to a time when Israel would be able to stand forth and say to the world, the Lord reigneth. Others have attributed it to when they were in exile and had come back from exile because they needed to be reminded that while there was no Messianic king on the throne, uh, there was no son of David ruling, they could still set their eyes to the Lord to remember he reigns. He's still in control, he's sovereign, and he will fulfill his promises. As you look at the psalm and the stanzas that we have, uh, the way that I've divided it just for ease of, of seeing the flow of what the psalmist is arguing for here is verses one and two, and then verses three and four together, and then verse five by itself. So verses one and two uh, shows us one aspect, and then verses three and four shows us a different aspect, and then verse 5 kind of puts it all together with a, with a concluding statement. So as we study this psalm, that's how I'll approach it, looking at verses 1 and 2 together, and then verses 3 and 4 together in verse 5. The Lord reigneth. This is Jehovah. If you look at your text, that is all caps Lord. And so Jehovah reigneth. Uh, the structure of the language that's here, you have, uh, you have the present tense being brought over into the English, and I think that's a good way to render it. It's, uh, it gives us a good window to the perfect tense that's in the Hebrew. So you have two perfects followed by an imperfect. And I know you're at lunchtime, siesta time, time to go to sleep. Perfect, imperfect, what does all that mean? Uh, read it and you see the ETH on the, on the Lord reigneth. So it carries a present tense aspect to it. He continues to reign even now. Amidst our circumstance, we can say, without a shadow of a doubt, the Lord is in control. The Lord is still on the throne. We say, God's still on the throne, right? Uh, that's, that's kind of the sentiment here. He is clothed with majesty. 
this has been called by some the enthronement, uh, one of the enthronement psalms. And let me remind you where it sits in the Psalter uh, in, in large. This is in book four. We divide the book of Psalms into five books. And uh, that corresponds to the five books of the Torah for the Jewish people, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And that's the, the Pentateuch for them. The book of Psalms is also divided into five sections. And this is in the midst of book number four. Well, what? how does that help me understand the psalm? Because there are different kinds of songs, right? I mean, we do this. There are different kinds of songs that we sing in our hymnal. We have gospel songs that uplift and encourage us to remember what Jesus did for us, encourage us along the way. We have uh, doctrinal hymns that are loaded with content that remind us that our God, uh, there, there are certain things that we need to understand about our faith, and we can teach through those according to Scripture. We teach ourselves, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we have psalms that we sing. We have hymns that we sing. We have spiritual songs that we sing. And each of those serve a different purpose in, in the music. And the Psalter is a hymn book. It's heaven's hymn book. So there are different kinds of psalms that are given for different occasions and different purposes to uplift and encourage us. This would be uh, one of those kingly psalms. And as you look, uh, there are some other psalms. I believe Psalm 47, Psalm 60, Psalm 65. But here in Psalm 93... And then again in Psalm 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, uh, these psalms all speak to the kingship of God. Notice Psalm 93 is anonymous. Psalm 95, no inscription, it's anonymous. Psalm 96, no inscription, it's anonymous. Psalm 97, I sound like a broken record, it is no inscription. It is anonymous, anonymously written. Psalm 98, we're told it's just a psalm. Uh, that's the inscription. Psalm 99, no inscription. It is anonymous. So do you see the, the pattern here? We know David wrote the large portion of psalms from the first book of the Psalter. And Psalm 1 sets the theme. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So with that being the theme, the opening of the Psalter, it's been teaching us, the book of Psalms has been teaching us all throughout our journey that if we will follow the way of the Lord and meditate on the word of God, we'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. If we will walk after ungodly ways, then we set the Lord to the side. It doesn't necessarily mean we go you know, adamantly after sin. It just means we live our life without God. If we choose that path, we will wind up with nothing in the end like the chink that's driven away with the wind. Then Psalm 2 tells us about the Messiah to come. And so as we see the early portion of the Psalter, by the time we come to this section, we are in the very heart of the whole book. We have been looking to this moment in the Psalter. Overall, I'm giving you an overall picture of where all the Psalms fit together. They are where they are on purpose. And this being the heart of the Psalter, Psalm 93 in particular, reminds us, no matter how bad things get here, no matter how much it looks like the world is winning, no matter how much it looks like the, the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering, let's not forget God is still on the throne. And His Word is sure. And we can take hope, we can take encouragement. Coming through Book 3, you know, Book 2, Book 3, 
by the time we were in book three, we were crying a lot. And it is full of lament. We don't stick our head in the sand and pretend like nothing's wrong. You see, John wrote in the New Testament that we can have joy, we can have fellowship. And I had a teacher encourage me in college when I was taking a class. He gave us a little snippet on what joy is not. That was really helpful for me. He gave us a list of about six things that joy is not. And some of those I still remember today. He encouraged us. Christian joy, true Christian joy is not walking around, slapping a smile on your face, pretending like nothing is wrong when the world's falling apart around you. The book of Psalms reminds us it's okay that we hurt sometimes. God understands. God cares. We might even come to some very dark moments, some difficult moments where we have legitimate questions that we ask. Lord, I know your word promises this, but it doesn't look like it's being fulfilled. In Psalm 88, closed in a very dark moment. There's no verse of encouragement that Psalm 88 closes with. And that was one of the most difficult psalms that I preached through. And you were with me for that journey if you were here. And uh, that was that was a challenge. But if we keep reading into Psalm 89, we pick up the psalm. There it is again that God's promises are sure. So even when we might be wondering, Lord, I just don't see it around me. You know, why are all these things happening? Why does it seem like the world is winning? We can remember. There will come a day when every promise that God made will finally be fulfilled. How can I say that? Well, consider with me the promises that he's already made. How many of those, out of the promises that we see in the Word of God, the promises that God has given, how many of those has he faltered on? Out of the ones that have been fulfilled already, the promises that God has given, how many of those have faltered? Uh, if we need a place to start, maybe you're wondering, well, the Bible's a big book. You know, Can you narrow that down a little bit for me, Pastor? Well, just think about Christ. He was prophesied. He was promised to come in a certain way by the prophets of old. Tell me, which of those promises did Jesus miss? Any of them? No. God's done it before. He'll do it again. And we can take take hope, biblical hope, an anchor of our soul, that while it may not look like everything's lining up just at this moment, one day the day star will arise with healing in his wings. And Jesus will come. And everything that was prophesied about his second coming will be fulfilled just as it was, every jot and every tittle, like it was in his first coming. See, Psalm 93 is beautiful because it reminds us that we can set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Would you do that with me here just for a moment? Psalm 93, the Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with with strength wherewith he hath girded himself. What does that mean? Explain that to me. Do you see that? uh, Pay attention to the parallelism, the poetry. There are three lines here. The Lord reigneth. And he is clothed with majesty. That's line number one. Can you set that just on a line in your mind? The Lord reigneth. He is on the throne right now. And his position right now is that he is clothed with majesty. This word majesty is only used a few times in the Psalter. And this is something that the Lord has done reflexively. He has taken this majesty on himself. And he is clothed with it. How does he become clothed with majesty? 
because we see his works and we say, this is the work of the Lord. It's marvelous in our eyes. Who is like our God? He is clothed, enshrouded with this majesty. It speaks to his brilliance. It speaks to his radiance. It speaks to his, his, um, his righteousness in every way. He's perfect. The Lord is clothed with strength. Think about the power of God from days of old. The same God that performed works of days of old is the same God that's on the throne today. He hasn't waned in his strength. His power has not stopped. He promised Jeremiah, call unto me, I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things. He's still that God. He can still do great and mighty things. He's clothed with strength, wherewith he hath girded himself. See the reflexive aspect there as well. The colon in the verse now gives us the third line of the poetry here, and it explains what is meant by him being clothed with majesty and strength, and that he's done this himself. No one has had to do this to God. This is attributes of his nature and his character. He says the world also established that it cannot be moved. How do we know that God is clothed with strength? How do we know that he's clothed, clothed with majesty? Maybe he would say it to Job like this. Job, canst thou loose the bands of Orion? Canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades? When I was uh, with our, our uh, Filipino family now, I'll call them my Filipino family. When I was there, I got to spend much time out under the stars. And it was interesting to me, it was intriguing, because being in the Northern Hemisphere all my life, being able to be in the Southern Hemisphere, brought a few more stars into purview that I don't usually get to see in the sky. And many of you know I'm an astronomical uh, nerd sometimes. I, not as nerdy as a lot of people, mind you, but I do like to look at the stars and consider the stars and look at the heavens. And I, I think, I'm not sure, but I think I found the Southern Cross while I was there. I like to hope to think that I was right, that it was the Southern Cross. It was, in, you know, it was pointing south, so I knew that for sure from the North Star. I could still find Polaris. But as I was down there looking at the constellations, I was able to point out the Pleiades to the pastor and the other people that were there. And to talk about that verse, Canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades? And one of the things that I was encouraged with when I studied astronomy was to think about the music of the spheres, the music that creation brings. How does this happen? Every time a planet orbits the sun, it comes around and it makes another, another rhythm. And then you put them all in sync. And you have, you know, eight and a half planets. I don't even know how to figure that out anymore. I was lied to all my childhood that Pluto was a planet. Now it's just a dwarf planet. And they changed that and changed their mind again. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, so, but it's going around the sun too. We can count that. You know, it's part of the rhythm. And, and it makes music. And then you have all the moons going around the planets that we can count. And so they have, you know, some of them have five or six moons, seven moons, and you can count these, and it's making music around those planets. We have one moon that uh, keeps our tides and everything working here. Otherwise, our oceans would stagnate, and everything would die, and we would have no life here. So think about what is holding all this in place. Scientifically, we know that it centers around gravity, and you have magnetic forces and all of this, but... You see, the idea of the psalmist is the world established. And I'm thankful. I'm not floating somewhere out, you know, to the nearest star that's how many light years away from our sun. Why is that? Because the world is established. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. 
The Lord is clothed with majesty and strength. If you ever need to be reminded that God's still on the throne, just turn off the media, unplug from the world, get out of creation, and look up and remember, hey, the sun still came up today. And it will continue to do that as long as there's time. Hey, you know, it's almost spring. Hallelujah. Although we have four seasons in a day here in Colorado anyway, so it doesn't matter, right? Um, but we'll have seasons. We'll have cycles. The world is established. And the Bible promises that it will be this way until Jesus comes and, and rules with a rod of iron for a thousand years. And he's coming. And his promises are sure. How do we know God's clothed with majesty? How do we know that he's clothed with strength? Well, take a look at the world. It cannot be moved. We can't break these gravitational bands that hold our planets together. So how do we know that God is thrown? In my mind, I imagine it like this. You know, there are parts of the Bible that talk about the Lord sitting upon the circle of the earth. Uh, the Bible teaches the world's round, even when people thought well, it was flat. Amen. Now, I know, you look out and you see the horizon, you go on a 360 degree, that's a circle. Right, okay, so the circle of the earth. But what's the idea with that? God sits upon the circle. His throne is high above the heavens. And so maybe in your mind, you can imagine it like I did. You take a little globe, you picture the earth being a globe, you go to the North Pole and you go above that, go above the North Star, where everything is spinning around, everything in creation seems to be orbiting around that North Star, and everything's spinning every year. And then you go on the back side of that North Star, you know there's... There's something back there that we haven't been able to see yet because we can't get to the angle to know what's behind the North Star. That's interesting. Maybe that's where the throne of God is. Maybe. I don't know. I'm guessing. I don't know what's there any more than you do. I don't even know. I have that kind of vision. I can't see that far. But if we can't see what's there, maybe that's the place. Maybe. Maybe we'll find that that's where the very throne of God is. You know, John saw it. He was caught up to that place. Paul talks about knowing a man. He was caught up to the third heaven. There's a place called the third heaven, and it exists, and it's real. And God's throne is above the earth, and it's established. Oh, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling pretty small right now compared to creation. Notice the psalmist goes on, verse 2, talking about this uh, idea that God is sovereign. He's still on the throne. He says, Thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. You see, God's always been king of the universe. He's always been king of creation. There's never been a time when he hasn't been. But even from before when he created the earth, and the Bible tells us he spoke these things into existence, and yes, we're crazy enough to believe that, to believe the Bible is true, that we didn't uh, you know, evolve out of primordial ooze. We, there's only really two worldviews. You can take a Bible view that says we were created and we have worth and we're all worth something in God's eyes, fearfully and wonderfully made. Or you can take a view that ultimately teaches that we don't have that worth, we don't have that value, that we just evolved and we're some miracle of science somehow uh, that we got here. I want to stand with the Bible because it gives me great worth. If nothing else, it shows me that God loved me and he created me for his pleasure, that I can fellowship with him and I can have a walk with him and I can know him personally. And I found him to be true. He's the God of my life. But this God has been God from eternity past. My little pea brain, my finite imagination. I try to imagine back into eternity past. I don't even know what's there. But I do know one thing. The Bible says God was there. As far back as I can dream, as far back as I can imagine, God has been on the throne. 
Nothing takes him by surprise. So do you see this predominant thought that the psalmist gives us in these first two verses? God is still on the throne. Say that with me. God is still on the throne. What are you facing today? What, what in this world is pulling at you and vying for your attention to get your eyes off of the heavenly places? You know, if you're saved and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches that you're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus right now. I know you're here in this room with me, but in a moment, in a thought of prayer, in an attitude of prayer, praying without ceasing, you can be in the very throne room of God, wherever that might be. Take a trip past the North Star. I don't know. You can be right there. Just like that. Because you are seated in heavenly places in Christ. No matter if it looks like the world's going to fall apart, the Bible promises it won't. The sun's still going to come up tomorrow, even if we can't see it because the clouds are blocking our view. The sun is still there. The moon, the stars, all of this will continue. And we get so concerned about things that go on down here. The big concern this year for our time seems to be the coronavirus. Last year it was something else that was going to kill us. The year before that we were all going to die from something else. The year before that we, it's this pattern of, of, of chaos in the world that, that there's no stability, but the Bible anchors us. You see, I, I may not fear tomorrow. Whatever comes will come. And I trust that it will be according to God's plan and he will watch over me. And in his time, he'll take me home and it will be the beginning of the rest of my eternity with him. And I have nothing but heaven to gain to look forward to. But I have a lot of work to do here with the time that he gives me to linger. And so let's not get torn away from the stability that is in our God. He's unmovable. And through that faith and hope, the Bible teaches that we too can be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. When our mind is stayed upon thee, great him, stayed upon Jehovah, are you stayed? Isaiah promises in 26.3 that if your mind is stayed upon him, you will have perfect peace. Perfect peace. It's mature. It's not lacking anything. The Lord will carry you through. Now let's look at these next two verses. The floods have lifted up. Now I want you to watch the progression because the translators have really helped us see the emphasis and the climactic uh, poetry that's here. Three phrases. Again, just like verse number one, we had three lines of poetry. Here in verse three, we're going to have three parallel lines of poetry in the original language, and it's brought over in the English for us. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. Do you see the three lines? Floods, floods, floods. And so while we think about God being on the throne, it doesn't change the fact that the tidal wave still comes. And it seems like the floods lift up their voice. They have lifted up. They lift up their voice. They lift up their waves. And it seems like we're about to be crashed with the tidal wave of whatever's coming at us. But notice verse number four. The Lord on high is what? Mightier than the noise of many waters. Many waters. Now, I've been on the Gulf Coast, at least, and I remember going down uh, for some of the tropical storms that were there. I never went out in the storm. I wasn't that dumb. But I remember going down beforehand and seeing the wind, just a little snippet, you know. And I've seen pictures of ships, you know, they take camera shots of them being in hurricanes and different things. And uh, 
this is the sound of many waters. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like death, imminent, on the way, looming. What are some times when we can think about throughout human history that this would have occurred? Well, we're told in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth that he divided the land from the waters. There was a time when the earth was nothing but water. It was without form and void. And the Lord divided the seas. He divided those. You see, the Lord is attributed here as being the one that conquered the seas and brought forth dry land so you and I don't have to live in water world. Amen? The Lord gave us the firmament, the firmaments that be. How did he do that? He's God. He did it by his power. Again, back to your worldview. What do you believe? You can choose to believe what everyone is saying today after the hypotheses and the different things that they promote, but when you read the Bible, there's, there's a worldview that's presented that God did this. And it's summarized in the statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How much is contained in that statement? Creation. You see, the Bible has a purpose in revealing to us what God did. Because the whole reason the Bible tells us about what happened in the beginning is to point us to the Redeemer that would come. See, it wasn't God's plan to tell us about, uh, about microevolution and to tell us about cellular components and tell us about light years and all of these things that we're still just unearthing, the technologies that we have. That's not the Bible's purpose to give us all the knowledge that we could ever find. The Bible's purpose was to tell us we were created by God and he set his love upon us as a pinnacle of his creation. And when we fell away from him because of disobedience and because of sin, his goal was to have a redeemer to bring us back into a restored relationship with him. That's the purpose of the Bible, to show us that we can be right with God through his promised Savior. And we know that through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So when did the floods lift up their voice? Well, in the original creation. I also read in Genesis chapter number 6 that in that day, everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. The imaginations of men's heart were only evil continually. And men continued to drift further and further away from the moorings and the truth of God. And God was ready to wipe out the population of the world because of the wickedness and the new ways that they dreamed up every day to sin and to hurt each other and to not live according to the, to the love that God had displayed. And he was done. His spirit would not always strive with man. But I'm thankful that there was one. And we read those beautiful words, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There was a flood. And God used it to bring judgment. And after that, he promised with setting his bow in the clouds he used that as a token to promise Noah he would never again destroy the world with a flood. But when did the seas rage? When did they lift up their might and the crashing of many waters? But what did God do? He saved a remnant. And those eight souls with all the animals that were with them, I know, but back to those fairy tales. Hey, you either believe the Bible or you don't. And the Bible says that God judged the world with a flood. And that there was a man who preached righteousness for 120 years, and the world refused him, but his family was saved because they saw his faith, they saw his life. And when God invited him into the ark, into the ark, because he was already in there, right? And shut that door, and the waves came, that sea lifted up its voice and brought destruction and death. But who's mightier? God is. And for a year, 
on that boat, Noah would be floating, safe, protected from God from all the elements. And he would send out those birds. And when that bird didn't come back, he knew God conquered the seas. And his boat was able to come rest again on ground. When did the seas lift up its voice? Well, there's a couple of times, but there's one more that is especially meaning for Israel. The Red Sea. When Pharaoh was closing in. The Lord had just delivered them from bondage. And Pharaoh had finally let them go. And it took the death of his firstborn in order for God to, to be able to break him to that point. He let them go and then he changed his mind. And here they are. They're being led by God in between a rock and a hard place on the seashore of the Red Sea. They have the sea in front of them. Millions of people. How are we going to get across? It's too vast. We can't cross this on our own. And then we have Pharaoh and his army coming to take us back. We're worse. And then we have these mountains on either side of us. There is literally nowhere to go. When did the sea lift up its voice? And who's mightier? God told Moses, tell him, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And with the rod of God, Moses stood forth with that rod and the water. The wind came all night long, he tells us, it blew. And God was mightier. And he parted that water. You have another fairy tale, right? You either believe the Bible or you don't. And for me, I'll believe the Bible. That this word is true from the beginning. And that it happened just like God said it did. The wind came and there was a wall of water on one side, a wall of water on the other, and the children of Israel went across on dry ground. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Oh, but it doesn't end there. Because Pharaoh sent his army to chase them. And when they were in the midst of the sea, what happened? God had the waters come crashing down and drowned Pharaoh's army in the sea. Why? Because they were pursuing his people that he had said, let my people go, let my people go. He was demonstrating to the world his might and his power. So when did the sea lift up its voice? At creation, at the flood, when Israel crossed the Red Sea. But you know, when we look at the term sea, it has the idea of people behind it too. And there's coming another day when the sea will raise its voice against God. You can prophetically read about it in the book of Revelation. They'll be gathered together, all the nations of the world, in a place called Megiddo. And the whole world will lift its voice up against God one more time. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ will come, and he will be traveling, according to Isaiah. And he will come from Basra in the east, and he will travel towards Jerusalem. And there will be a battle like this world has never seen. And his people will be spared in that day, those that remain. But the blood will be up to the horse's bridle because the sea will once again be moved by the beast and the Antichrist out of the pits of hell, the devil himself, that old dragon, that's more fairy tales. Either you believe the Bible or you don't. And I believe that what God says will happen will come to pass. Just like it did in Egypt, just like it did for Noah, just like it did in creation one day. The seas, the peoples of this world will rise up in ultimate rebellion against God, being led by the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet. And God, one more time, will demonstrate that he is God over all. And he will come, and as bad as it will be, Revelation chapter 19 tells us that John said, I saw a white horse, and him that sat upon him is called faithful and true. On his vesture and on his thigh, a name written, 
King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's not coming just to, to bring judgment to the world. The whole purpose is to purge the world of sin and unrighteousness and wickedness once and for all and to establish his perfect reign in his world. Does not this yearn? Does not this world yearn for some utopia? Even Marx tried to teach that there could be a utopia, but his fault was teaching that we could get it in our own strength. There will not be peace on this earth until Jesus Christ comes and establishes his reign of peace for a thousand years. The Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor. Yes, his name is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So one day in the future, yet, the sea will arise and God will conquer because he is mighty. He is over all. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. And then verse 5. So let's, let's recap. We have seen together that God's still on the throne. We have seen together that no matter what this world throws at us and every tidal wave we face, God is greater. God is greater than your circumstances. And he can help you navigate the waters of life when it seems like there's a hurricane on the horizon. Remember the times that Jesus stood forth with his disciples and rebuked them and said, where is your faith? Oh, you little faith. What did he do? He calmed the seas. He stilled the waters and he spoke peace. Sometimes he'll speak peace. Sometimes he'll carry you safely through to the other side. But regardless, he is mightier. Now, the psalmist closes in verse 5. Talking about the testimonies of the Lord being very short. What are his testimonies? It's the Bible. It's the word of God. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. You see, we gather, we come to the Lord's house, and this is where we're reminded that God is on the throne. And his house is a place of, of holiness. His house is a place where his testimonies can be heralded forth, and this will continue forever. Where are you dwelling? You know, a house is where you dwell, but a house is only a home if you make it a home. You can have a structure that's empty, shell, a place that might protect you from the elements, but it's not home because your heart's not there. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where do you dwell? The Bible promises if you will abide in Christ, you can know the peace and the joy that passes understanding. And I don't know about you, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what Joshua said. That line is drawn in the sand. Where will you stand? Will you stand safely with the Lord in his house, reminded of the truth of his word? Or will you remain alienated in a world of, of trembling seas and threatening waves and try to accomplish that all by yourself? If you sail those waters, I'll tell you one thing's for sure. Rocks are on the horizon and your vessel will crash one day. And it will be your demise. But won't you look to the lighthouse? Won't you heed the light of the gospel, the glorious gospel of Christ, and come in from the storms of life and come into the Lord's house and say, that's where I will dwell. That's the place of safety. That's the place of peace and contentment. Guide me, my Savior, safely to your shores. May I rest in you and know that you are still on the throne. And you are mightier than all the circumstances that surround me. And I will dwell in the place where your peace is. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. 
That's how David closed Psalm 23. The word follow after in that psalm has the sense of to pursue, to hunt, if you will. And so what's hunting you? What's pursuing you? Is it more trouble? Is it those crashing waves that threaten? Or is it the peace, the goodness, the mercy of the Lord pursuing you, following after you, looking after you, watching over you? Oh, can your mind be stayed on Jehovah? 